One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect, communicate, create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast all about leaving the EU. Now, we've had a week off because we were rather smug and content with our last episode with, with Oliver Norgrove. But don't worry because I am joined by our two, two usual contributors. Looking rather content is Alex Davis. Hello, Alex. Hello. And looking rather smug is Christian Spence. Thank you for that. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, gents. Let's well, let's just catch up with some of the more bo- some of the more boring stuff. After all, we are a business po- po- podcast dealing with Brexit. So the two things that I wanted you to go go over, you can do this in any way you want, is the impact of VAT, followed by the recent comments from the CBI. <laughs> Where do we start? Okay, the first thing to say is that it, not a lot is happening, really. No. I, I mean, in the month leading up to Christmas, not a lot seems to have happened. And since Christmas, not a lot seems to have happened. And a lot of the conversation, it's, it's kind of good in a way, because a lot of the conversation has fallen back onto you know definitions of customs union. And, and you know we're back to talking about the details, because... In terms of the politics and the Brexit process, it's, it's just still at a standstill. I think, yeah, I, I think it's, it certainly stands up publicly. Of course, I mean, there's there's quite a lot of background background work going on hidden in the uh, in the marble halls of the EU at the moment. Because, um, of course, the last big thing we had was you know the UK finally got its uh, its phase one. Uh, status through just before Christmas um, that's now being worked on in detail because people say oh we've got it it's like ah, don't forget we got sufficient progress ah. it's not done um, there's still quite a lot of detail to flesh out particularly around the Northern Ireland border which was yeah. just completely fudged so you know our statements of intent are sufficient mm. um, so there's lots of paperwork going on on that and the EU is draft- is currently in the process of drafting its uh, negotiation guidelines for Monsieur Barnier um, for phase two and transition. So all that's happening in the background. Um, so we're not seeing a great deal. And I think it's the 29th of January that the EU is due to publish its guidelines for Michel Barnier and his Task Force 50 on, uh, on, the, on so, the transition process. So are they updating their guidelines on a rolling basis now? Well, they do it for each phase. So essentially, don't forget, the, the guidelines that were originally drawn up by the EU last year only covered getting us through to the first phase essentially transition wasn't on the table mm-hmm. transition you know the EU only agreed in December that trans- that we'll now talk about transition the UK has asked for it so the, U- the EU is now drawing up its guidelines so they've got to get essentially the agreement of the other 27 uh, to what it is they have to agree to they'll give all that to Barnier and then off we go with the uh, with the next round of talks. You raise a good point, because I've actually seen someone tweeting today about some uh, transition directives which have come out of the, the Commission. 
they've mm-hmm. been called. And they, they, they make it very clear that the withdrawal stuff isn't sorted out. Um, yeah. Just because we've got this, you know, in quotes, first phase agreement, it, it's really not sorted. No, it's um, not it. And they've come back with some stricter requirements for citizens' rights. Mm-hmm. Um, they basically told us that the the uh, the current situation with regards to citizens' rights must be maintained up until the end of the transition period. So everything's got to basically stay the same. Yeah, thirty first of December twenty twenty. That's when we expect because I think for the last year or so, probably a bit more, we, the assumption has been two years. Transition, mm-hmm. so two calendar years, but the EU, the EU's budgeting cycle essentially runs out um, at the end of December 2020, so it's well, more are, likely to be that. different stuff on that because I've, I've seen that people are talking about it now only running till 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, in the select committee today, um, David Davis um, got questioned uh, quite, quite, was given some difficult questions by people like David <laughs> Reesmont. Well put. Let's say. Um, <laughs> Yeah, he, he said that he expects the transition period to be between 21 and 27 months, so he's talking two well, years. Plus. Well, 20, 21 months would take you to the end of uh, yeah, yeah. the end of December, yeah, end of December 2020. Um, just, just whilst you're on the select committee stuff, yeah. I'd be interested to know, what do you, how do you rate the standard of discussion at the, select, at the select committee? And do you think that they're doing a good job of holding David Davis to account? Do you think they've got a good grasp of what's going on is, is basically what I'm asking? I think they do have a good grasp of what's going on. I think there's a good range of people um, there to question him. Um, you know, Henry Ruben's doing a good job, um, tends to open it up with quite, quite a difficult question. The, the problem is that, first of all, I mean, I think Ben said today, um, in the last hour, Davis was just basically telling them that he'd got, he got another meeting to go to and needed to go, so they needed to wrap it up. <laughs> and Ben came back saying, well, if you were here more often, you know, we could have shorter sessions. Um, so I think the problem is probably more on David Davis' side in that he's he's getting quite adept at avoiding uh, avoiding the hard questions. But I think the panel itself do quite well um, in the in the question questioning of him. Yeah, obviously some of them have got different agendas to the others. Um, we saw Jacob Rees-Mogg today um, giving him a very hard time over the uh, the transition period and asking whether we're going to become a vassal state. Um, which is uh, we've, we've spoken about the position that we're going to put ourselves in before and so I completely understand his, his uh, reasoning there um, he even asked uh, David Davis why are we not just extending Article 50 like be honest about it um, you know, he, hadn't, he hadn't really got a comeback I think Davis's main comeback was that the plan is still that during the transition period we will be allowed to go and do trade deals with third countries um, what is the advantage of extending Article 50 Compared to the transitional phase, um, well, it's sta- I mean, legally, it's standstill. Yeah. It, it's a genuine technical legal standstill. So absolutely nothing changes. Where essentially the tra- the challenge with the transition is, you want to enable an outcome which is absolutely identical, but you're going to have to do that through new legal structures, um, untried and untested legal structures. So the UK will need to be treated by the EU and all of its third parties as if it were still a member without sort of getting into WTO issues of, well, isn't that an exception to the rule of most favoured nation and all that sort of stuff. So it, it just I mean, it just makes, in many ways, it would just make everything simpler. We are staying in in all but name. Mm. Um, and also, of course, the status quo would mean we keep our representation. So the UK government retains its seat on the on the European Council. Uh, yes, on the European Council, um, our MEPs retain their votes. All of that kind of stuff. Where in the in the as we understand it now, the sensible transition is we would lose all of that representation. Well, 
reason why I put that question to Davis today and Davis's response was that I think he said on average it takes new rules and regs about 22 months on average to come into enforcement. So if the transition period is only going to be about that length anyway, there should be nothing coming into force during that period which we haven't already had a say and agreed upon. Um, and Reesmog, I don't think, was particularly happy with that as an answer. Um, but it's, it's interesting to see today that even you know the hardest of hard Brexiteers like Reesmog are, are saying, well, essentially, if this is a transition arrangement you're asking for, then what's the point? Why don't we just extend out Article 50, making the same arguments that we would? I, I think probably the reason that the government is so reluctant to go down that path is that it's going to be seen by a lot of people as a, a massive opportunity to stop the whole thing from happening. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, the, the other technical bit actually, I just realised, just remembered, is... The challenge is, of course, is we can't negotiate a free trade agreement with Europe until we are not a member. That, that's legally. That's legally so because you Probably can't because else. yeah because yeah. we're not a third country. So we can't but we can't even prep the EU trade deal while we're still but in the I mean, EU. This is kind of a little bit of a red herring. It's like when we say they're not discussed something you know, subject X or subject Y. Mm. We know they are actually thinking about it and discussing it behind the scenes. They literally just can't do it. Can't open. do anything about it, as it were, practically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, just to go back then, um, the, C- the CBI. CBI. Um, what, what, what have they said? They came out with a, a piece over the weekend uh, essentially saying the UK should remain in the customs union mm. uh, for at least the foreseeable future, um, if not longer. That raised a lot of heads because it's the first time, I think, one of the big business organisations has come out absolutely in favour of one of the you know multiple pillars which make up sort of the EU structures and said we should do this rather than kind of hedging around saying well you know benefits of the single market or benefits of customs union or common commercial policy or anything like that. So a huge call um, which has all of a sudden kind of sent a lot of the newspaper journalists and, and commentators back to their notepads just to remind themselves actually what the customs union is and why it's important or not important <laughs> and what does it do. Um, because essentially most people have just talked about the customs union as being the thing which stops you signing your own trade deals. Yeah, which isn't true. Which isn't true. No. Do you want to explain a bit about that? Uh, yeah. Uh, I enjoy I, doing I, this to him. It's I, fun. I've also just been reading some stuff because I know I've been through all this before but you have to constantly remind yourself of Very de- diligent. definitions yeah. and things. Um, so the, first, the first issue with the CBI announcement is that it's, it's once again confusing the customs union with a customs union. Yeah. Because... In March, 20, the end of March 2019, we're leaving the EU, and by definition, we are leaving the EU customs union. Like it's, it's tied up into EU treaties. We can't do anything about it. We're coming, we're coming out of the EU customs union. So what the CBI is really asking is that we set up a new customs union arrangement that is exactly, you know, exactly, exactly replicated. Yeah. So a UK EU customs union. Essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, there, there is certainly precedent for that happening. I mean. People also make the mistake of saying that Turkey's in the customs union when it isn't. It's got its own custom customs union arrangement uh, with the EU, which um, covers particular sectors and things like that. Um, but if you go to the, you know, the, the Turkish border, there are still lots and lots of checks because many areas of the economy are not covered by that customs union. Um, so. I think customs unions historically are very often tied to political union and. I think that's one of the reasons why the hard levers were always so adamant that we needed to come out of this. But the EU customs union has kind of, over time, been turned into something much less impactful than it was originally. So lots of people have this idea that the customs union is what is largely responsible for frictionless trade and removal, removal of border checks. 
and things like that, when in reality it isn't. It's, it's much more to do with the combination of the customs union and the single market. Um, the customs union, really in a nutshell, is there to remove tariffs um, uh, when EU countries are trading uh, amongst themselves. Also, uh, it enforces the common external tariff around the EU, and it also gets around the problem of rules of origin. I think those mm-hmm. are the three yep. key things. Um, and anything else which people say that the customs union is responsible for is probably better attributed to the single market rather than the customs union. Yeah, that's exactly what I would have said for the record. <laughs> uh, just out of interest, um, CBI. You guys in CBI must have a lot of crossover. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. We work. We, yeah, we work with them mostly at a regional level. They're a regional kind of structure body mm. rather than anything else. So we we talk to their northwest guys quite a lot, and yeah, we we sit on panels with them, you know, at a national level. Yeah. Uh, how does their their view as an organisation differ from your view as an organisation? Um, they are. They can probably be a bit more essentially pro-EU, they're a bit more on the pro-Remain side, just because that's their, their membership, so mm. their, their membership is, is much more skewed towards very large um, international corporations than, than the Chamber of Commerce membership is um, so I think they said their members were something like 75% in favour of Remain, whereas ours came in at 55 mm-hmm. in the last vote, so that gives them a sort of slightly different perspective on the world really. Uh, I have seen people um, suggesting that the CBI is calling for the Customs Union because uh, the customs union benefits big business and helps mm-hmm. big business get one over on the SMEs. But well, I don't think I don't think that's actually their reasoning. I'd, yeah, I'd, I'm not sure. I think there'll be there'll be aspects of that certainly, but I'd, yeah, I wouldn't treat it as a. Uh, as gospel, but I, I guess the bit that comes out of this, John, is is when Alex t- touched on uh, on rules of origin, mm-hmm. which is a sort of oh, yeah. That's, yeah. That's the key one. This is the really important part. Um, so there's been a couple of good research papers out in the uh, in the past few weeks. One of which talks about the fact that only about half of UK exports what we call capital goods. So essentially, the product is finished. So we send a fully fledged something um, out of the UK. Now, this is from who? Which organisation has? Off the top of my head, I can't remember. It it's might the have been I- the IFS. It IFS. might have been UK and the EU. I can't remember. Okay. Um, so only about half are finished. So that means essentially about half of our exports are what we would call intermediate goods. Mm-hmm. So they're going off somewhere else to have more things done to them. So um, when you say that, do you mean? Products which are semi-made, exactly. That's it. That's not exactly. not components. Well, they might be. They might be. Yeah, that's it. They might. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. An engine for a car, exactly. That kind of thing. And then for the the other report, then was specifically looking at the automotive sector. So, of course, we know the UK is one of the largest automotive exporters in in the world, um, uh, supplying huge huge volumes of output for the EU. One of our big exports. Only about 25% of the value of a car made in a UK car plant is originates in the UK. Um, so what that means essentially, of course, is what we're doing, what, you know, for example, this may or may not be true, for example, the Nissan Sunderland plant is bringing in engines from Germany, it's bringing in wheels from Italy, etc., etc., of course, there is value addition in the UK as all that's put together, but it's only about 25%. Mm. Now, that really matters if you're outside the customs union. Now, there are things you can do here, aren't there? Now, this isn't a Brexit, a Brexit uh, a Pacific point, but there is a lot of, say, making a car overseas or a product overseas, just have it bolted, over, bolted, bolted together over here in order to have it made in the UK, quote-unquote. You, you, you could say that. Certainly, yeah. It's that it, it will be hard to get at any sort of specific 
specific issues on that. But the rules origins bit's important. So as Alex said, this is one of the kind of the big issues in a customs union. So people have said, let's go back to some of our Brexit comments. You know, for you, we could go to the you know the, the nuttier side, which says Germany is always going to want to buy its BMWs off us because yep. why wouldn't it? Um, so we don't need to worry about tariffs because there will be a free trade agreement. And actually. On the sense that there will be a free trade agreement, I'd say that's pretty likely. It's kind of hard to imagine that we wouldn't at least keep a zero tariff regime. The problem is most free trade agreements, if not all, have a rule of origin set of uh, regulations in there, which essentially means usually a majority, I think it's 55% in a lot of the EU ones, about 55% of the value add of the product has to be made within that country to be able to attract the preferential rate, the zero tariff rate. So essentially, a, a car assembled at Nissan, which has got 75% of its value add coming from within the EU, or outside the UK, let's just say, would not, therefore, be eligible for preferential tariffs going back into the, going into the EU market. That sounds like a horrifically complex process. It is, and it, the documentation for it is a nightmare. Uh, actually, you might want to pick up a bit on that. You, sort of, yeah, you were yeah. talking about it earlier. Um, um, yeah, I mean... We've, we've started going on grants of our members who have to deal with this kind of thing to try and learn from them you know, the troubles that they face and what their thoughts are on this. Um, so we went out to a, a big manufacturing company um, just a couple of weeks ago to speak to them about this. And the whole dilemma for them is essentially whether it's worth going through the trouble of doing all these uh, or doing all these rules of rules of origin you know calculations and documentation in order to achieve that preferential access to certain markets and it's something which companies like them constantly have to toss up and um, so what this leads to is that I've, I've been reading recently that the uh, the impact of free trade agreements so you know Liam Fox Liam Fox's big thing in, the, in all this is that we want to be able to go and sign free trade agreements with third countries and that it's going to be a, a new kind of international trade regime for the UK and blah, 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 blah. But the actual, the benefit to economies of free trade agreements and the take-up of uh, routing goods through free trade agreements by businesses is actually a hell of a lot lower than most people expect. Mm. Um, I mean, I think the impacts of some of the big free trade agreements, it's, it's you know, some of them are coming in at, you know, under one percent, you know, like, like yeah, yeah. overall benefit to the economy. Like it's, I, I mean, mean, the US like, one. People have talked to you. Yeah. But the big one that everyone shouts about is the UK can now get a free trade agreement with the US. The modelling suggests the benefit might be about 0.4 percent of GDP. Really, that's all you're looking at. And yeah. actually, I mean, again, not particularly linked link to Brexit, but there's not that many encouraging signs out of the US at the moment. In fact, oh, no, for the first time I can, I can remember in a long time, they've actually le- uh, levied ta- ta- um, tariffs on Absolutely. things. Absolutely, it's hugely protectionist country at the best of times. Yeah. You know, even under kind of the open, you know, even under kind of Reagan and Obama administrations, it was a protection. It was more protectionist than most. Mm-hmm. Under the current administration, it's you know, it, they may as well build a wall. Machines now, or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, the, the impact of these free trade, free trade agreements is, is low, a lot lower than most people expect. I mean, even even the ones which do really well, it's it's, it's coming in under five percent, let's say. Um, so, going back to the rules of origin thing, the problem the problem with this is that one of the reasons why take up by businesses of, of of putting their goods through these preferential free trade agreements is the fact that they then have to deal with this this rules of origin um, stipulation. So they have to. 
they, they have to work out a way of figuring out exactly how much value of each product was added and where also and then they have to provide the documentation which is very complicated to prove that in order to achieve the preferential tariff rates or whatever you know whatever preference that the free trade agreement is is giving them and of course i think one of the challenges of course is this shuttles up the supply chain in a way people don't think because we will say oh well you know nissan can afford to do all of that stuff you know it can it knows what it's adding it does but of course it will buy very specific components from very small manufacturers who specialize in one very very small niche and it's perfectly plausible that the the people who are doing that, you know, the smaller work, the the S of the SME in their supply chain, they probably don't consider themselves exporters because they're only selling to UK companies. But it'll be those S of the SMEs who will now be asked in the future by the Nissan of this world, can you provide documentation on where the rules of origin wow. of all of your raw materials are coming from? So the other thing I. I'm sort of thinking that I'm completely wrong, and if I am completely wrong, please tell me immediately. <laughs> but doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> sure well. Doesn't it almost disincentivise being efficient? Because you know, the less value that you add, that's clearly going to have a knock-on, else um, a knock-on else elsewhere in the su- in the supply chain. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and that's sort of the challenge. So the supply, you know, one of the things we talked about when people push back and say, "Look, anyone can. You don't need to be in the EU. Lots of other successful countries aren't in the in the customs union. You know, we don't need to be there." The point is, of course, is all of these supply chains have arranged themselves over the past, I mean, twenty five years, certainly post single market. The customs union, of course, goes back to the sixties on the basis that all this is possible. So passing what we called before intermediate goods across countries, it's the the equivalent of having a national border in the middle of your factory. Mm. Passing that is not a problem under a customs union. Outside a customs union, it's huge. It doesn't happen across other national borders because it's really hard. Yeah. Um, So in this sense, the customs union does allow you to have a single factory which spans up to 28 countries without any of the hassle. That wouldn't outside the custom union. That is not where those things would have been put. So it does sound like it's a little bit too early to, to tell. But has your initial consultation with your members thrown up any un, uh, any unexpected answers? Well, I think the Alex search on an item, which is that you know, there's a big question about whether you even attempt for preferential. Because imagine the tariff on you know for the, the automotive industry is four percent mm. because they don't they don't hit the rules of origin markers. So there's a few things you can do. You can either try and repatriate more of your supply chain um, into the UK. Uh, is this the new trendy word, re- reshoring? Yep, yeah, you could reshore your supply chain to get the value above that. That's possible. It won't happen. It cannot happen quickly. Mm. And for some components, there is simply absolutely no competence in those areas in the you know within the UK manufacturing base. They've been based in other countries for a very very long time. You wouldn't get it. So that can happen over a very long period of time. Um, so that would get you over the rules of origin hurdle. Or you actually say, you know what, we've done all the numbers and we think complying with the rules of origin checks is probably going to cost us about 7% overall. Well, actually, the tariff's only four. Sod it, just pay the tariff. It's yeah. just easier. At which point, you actually, you don't really need the, the FTA. is kind of pointless because nobody's yeah. using it. The other, the other thing which, which struck me um, from one of the visits that we did was that we, we have to talk about companies which operate just in time you know like uh, supply chains and, and, and things like that but what about what about companies who have to hold old stock like they have to hold stock ready to repair you know old machinery yeah things like that 
if they've got warehouses full of you know a mix of new stock which is just in time and old stock which is there to repair old stuff and then they've got to export that under a new system where they need to provide rules of origin they've then got to go and figure out what proportion of that old stock which might have been sitting there for 20 years you know in order in order to figure that out you know it, yeah, half the companies who made it aren't there anymore. It's basically yeah. impossible to figure that stuff out. Um, so you, you've either got to go through your entire warehouse, you know, go through every single bit which you're going to sell and, and figure it out and provide the documentation for all of it, or you just say, it's not worth it, screw it, we'll avoid rooting all this through the free trade agreement, which really brings into question... Why bother? ...the benefit yeah. of doing all these new free trade agreements, yeah. Um, obviously, the intention of the government is to somehow grandfather the ones which we've currently got with the EU. But, it, yeah, it... When Liam Fox goes on about the fact that signing all these new free trade agreements is going to, you know, boost GDP by massive amounts and yeah, revitalise the economy, all all the evidence suggests that the impacts of these things are, are much much lower than. Yeah, when, and and this will apply to to new FTA because we talked specifically really about the EU stuff, but this is about those new ones that you know we go out and sign. You know, he was out he was out talking to the uh, to the massive economy of Mongolia this week. Uh, Every about, little helps. Uh, little helps, as some as some uh, supermarkets tell you. Um, the challenge then, of course, is because we're this intermediate manufacturer. The UK economy on the whole is an intermediate manufacturer. We don't make stuff much stuff from mm. raw materials or components that were made in the UK. Actually, the question then is actually how much of UK manufacturing could ever trigger a rule of origin clause in a third-party FTA? Actually, very little, because we've allowed our supply chain to disperse across the EU, and that doesn't matter in the customs union. But outside the customs union, all of a sudden it does matter. So actually, there's a question about how much... Whilst you wait for the entire engineering supply chain to relocate itself, bearing in mind it could go one of two ways... It's either onshores here or offshores there. Um, it's pretty black and white. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's pretty black and white. Well, talk, uh, talk about crossing borders. We've had a cross-border visit by a certain pre- President Macron. Um, do you think his trip was, uh, was a success for, uh, ang- for, for Anglo-Franco uh, relations? This is you, Alex. I've not seen a great deal about this. I, I honestly haven't seen a great deal about it either. All, 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 all I've seen is that he said some things which, again, were just a bit confusing and didn't make a whole lot of sense. And this is perhaps another thing which we can draw on for a little bit, is that the EU constantly goes on about the fact that the four freedoms are indivisible and also about the fact that we cannot cherry-pick um, and... I think the, the, the conversation with Macron brought some of that into question because what, what he said was, whatever agreement we end up having, it's going to be bespoke. Yeah. It's going to be bespoke for the UK. And I think we've spoken well, about, we, even, if, even if we go down you know, the, the Norway option, the off, the, you know, what people say is the off-the-shelf option, it will be configured to be specific to the UK. Whatever route we go down, it, it will be bespoke. Yeah. It's not going to be exactly the same as any other arrangement. Yeah, because if we're not cherry-picking... Someone else is cherry picking. I mean, it's almost by definition that's how it works. Yeah, and I think that's it. And I think we we may have sort of slightly confuse this against some of our previous language where yeah, we've yeah, reinforced, yeah. you know, and the the EU too, where you say, look, there is a CETA option, the Canada Agreement. There is the Norway option. That's going to be your choice. Of course, those are those are fuzzy things. So I think there is a, there will basically be a choice between something that looks like CETA, a free trade agreement in goods with a little bit of extra stuff, or something that looks like Norway, which is basically four freedoms but tweaked. I don't think there's probably much more on the table than those, but each of those is relatively fuzzy. They, you know, they, they, 
You, because you can't apply the Norway Icelandic model to the UK economy. It would just be it would be insane. There would be additional stuff going on. Well, I, I mean, the only thing I can add to this is I thought he was very EU with his approach, which was these are the rules and that will be that. Yeah, and I think that, you know, there's there's always been that desire from the U twenty seven to maintain unity you know, over than you know over above anything else. That strikes you know it's. It, it's something our cabinet could learn from. Did he not also <laughs> say that he thinks the French people would have voted out? Yes, he did. That's I, right. I read this, but I didn't know if that was in context. Like, no, I think so. I think you know. I remember seeing an article or two about this. Yeah, I think he said, you know, you know what, what would you know? Why wouldn't you do the same thing in France? Because if we, if we did, they'd vote to leave, which is kind of odd because you may actually, you know, from CAP particularly, the <laughs> agricultural policy, yeah, France is the, the single biggest beneficiary. Well, I do think it's also odd that a, a national leader would say, "Oh yeah, I mean, I know that I know that's what the people want, but this so, is what they're so going to get." Don't, yeah. don't bloody well ask them. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, we've seen, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've seen that um, that referendums over here are a roaring or a roaring success. I think it's the old barrister's line about never ever any ask any question that you don't already know the answer to. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I quite like I quite like the tapestry, and yeah. Yeah, we'll leave it there. Um, now you mentioned the Norway option. You mentioned uh, I think we mentioned the Norway option every mm. week. I tell you what, we haven't mentioned the Jersey option. Yes. Uh, kind of going back to the whole rules, rules of origin customs union thing um, now just before you answer this where has it come from uh, the term the jersey option was coined by a guy called Sam Lowe yeah. who is a trade expert he currently works for there's a an online group of trade experts which is called the UK Trade Forum I think mm-hmm. um, it's, it's only it's only become a thing recently but they're really all, all really really good people to follow into it uh, uh, he also has recently taken up a post at the Centre for European Reform. Um, so he's, he's my go-to guy, on, I would say, on Twitter on, on trade issues. Right. So he he coined the term the Jersey option as a bit of a joke, but it's now starting to be taken quite seriously as an option, and they're talking about it on, uh, across across the channel. Um, and so him and another guy, I can't remember the name of, I'll have to apologise to that person, um, released a piece of research um, from the Centre for European Reform on what the Jersey option is and whether it's a possibility. And I'm not an expert, but essentially, Jersey is a crown, de- a crown dependency with the EU, kind of like Guernsey and... Yeah, with the, with the UK. Yeah. Right, so crown yeah. dependency yes, yes, sorry, yes. of the EU. Of, of the UK. Of the UK. So, yeah. Yeah, right, I was, yeah, I was going to say, because I know about preceptorates, I know about crown, yeah. crown dependencies, yeah, but I'm, it's a preceptorate of the UK... Within the EU is what is what I'm going to say. Well, this is the thing. And again, I'm, I'm talking about stuff I'm not an expert. They are, they are not part of the European Union. That, that's the point. Is that Jersey, Guernsey, all these places? They're not members of the EU, but they are de facto a member of the single market and the customs union Ooh. for goods no. and for goods only, which is the big point. So they're not members of the EU. Now this this this, this blows my mind, right? Yeah. Because quite a few places are members of the single market for goods but not services. And all of these places seem to have remor- remarkably robust service-based economies. Yeah, well, yeah, that, that's kind of one of, one of the arguments that, that, that they make. So what, what they're suggesting is that we could step into this, this similar, a similar position to Jersey or Guernsey or wherever, whereby we are still full members of the single market and the customs union, but only for goods. Right. Um, I mean, the first thing to say is the single market has always been renowned for not being great in terms of services coverage. And obviously, 
everyone will agree that the UK has massive advantage in terms of uh, uh, services. And so the argument that they're making is that this is an arrangement which might be able to suit everyone um, because it allows us to stay in the single market in the customs union in terms of goods, so we get around you know, the rules of origin thing, everything that we've just be, been talking about. It'll please people like the CBI. Um, you know, companies that export goods can do so in, on exactly the same terms that they are today. But because... We would not be covered. We would not be covering services under that. It allows us to have some kind of wiggle room with the EU in terms of actually dividing those four freedoms. Essentially, exactly. You take and, one of only four. And yeah, that's it. So their their suggestion is that by taking freedom of movement of goods but not services, we might also be able to reform freedom of movement of people. That's right. Yeah. No, the Ch- Channel Islands and the Isle of Man are the famous ones in the UK, of course, uh, closest to us. But so yeah, of the four freedoms, they are their only signatories to the freedom of goods. Yes. So but, services. People and capital does not apply. So actually, they are they are divisible. <laughs> this, well, yeah, this is what we're discovering. I think, I d- I think this is it. But don't forget, this is all you've got to put this in context about when about how all this stuff came in. So mm. a lot of this stuff was fudged in seventy three to get the UK in. Yeah, essentially. Um, the the I guess the question is how much appetite does the EU have to refudge? In its current guise, so you know, it was this was this was the European Community back in seventy two, seventy three. UK and Ireland entered together. How do you handle these things? We kind of fudge it because I mean, the other one, of course, is Switzerland. You know, the, the, Switzerland's position is not that of Norway. It's not an EEA member. Um, it's a fudged issue, primarily because Switzerland said we don't want to join. Um, but the Swiss government and most of the EU saw the benefits, so they fudged it. But I guess some of the messaging we get, we've had from the EU in the last year or so is it's not really up for re-enacting some of this stuff because actually it causes problems. It makes life really hard. Um, I mean, it which is much pro- which is probably how not, it is. Well, it's probably not an issue for an economy the size of Jersey because at the EU scale, at the political relevance scale, it's, it's kind of irrelevant. Mm. Whether that's plausible for a... £1.7 trillion pound economy. Um, I guess where it falls down is the perception of value of these freedoms. The UK obviously does value freedom of capital, free, free, freedom of goods, so on and so forth. Now, I don't have the statistics to back it up, but if I, were, if I was to guess, if I was going to have a random stab in the dark, I would say the value of freedom of movement is far more valuable to people on the continent because they speak m- many more languages, whereas we think, speak one language. I think that's a reasonable. I think that's a reasonable point, actually. It's, I think it's always been one of the challenges in the in the UK relationship politically. Mm. Is essentially you're right. EU twenty seven um, yeah. workers are better able to take advantage of the UK than the other way around, purely because was it only three percent of UK citizens speak uh, speak a second language? Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't work in Spain or. or or France, well, yeah, yeah. I could if they were all speaking English. Yes, exactly. so I, I probably could actually. But so go back to the Jersey option. Um, so there's, there's some terminology which I've missed, which apparently has been mentioned by Theresa May, which is the three baskets approach. Oh, ah, mm. no. So and this apparently is the is the current strategy which the government is seriously considering um, looking into. So we've spoken in previous weeks about the whole issue of regulatory convergence uh, or divergence whether we continue to fully align ourselves with the rules and regs of the EU uh, you know getting over issues like the Irish border thing and you know all that or whether we choose to diverge which is what all the Brexiteers want but then that brings its own problems and so the approach which apparently is being discussed in Whitehall and is being termed three baskets approach is 
an approach where certain parts of the economy will remain fully harmonised and fully aligned with the EU. Other parts of the economy, we diverge, uh, I think what they're calling is, is managed diversion, I think mm -hmm. is something like that. I've heard right? that before. Yeah. Okay. So in those sectors of the economy, we would be allowed to diverge, but it would still be a two-way thing between us and the EU, so that the enforcement of the rules and regs could still happen as it does today. So essentially we could agree that we're going to diverge in these particular ways, in these particular sectors, the EU would agree to that, and so there would be no implication for things moving across borders. It's that's, almost like a reverse accession. That's in basket ways. number. That, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that's right. So that's basket number two, and then basket number three are other areas of the economy where we fully diverge and can do whatever we want. And so, so that'd be that, fishing or something. Yeah, th I mean that would be a good example. So fisheries and agriculture are the big two, which people tend to think of. Um, Again, this is, this is, I don't know how much research has been done on this. It strikes me as a very, very, very problematic approach. We've spoken about the problems that the Swiss have with trying to do that kind of thing. You know, how do you choose which parts of the economy you diverge? Is that, you know, are you going to start seeing things about favouritism of particular sectors of the economy? I mean, you know, probably. You know, yeah, it, 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 it strikes me as something which might be a nightmare to agree and a nightmare to manage. And it's it really, it, it's not something which I think that the EU would agree to. I guess the only people talking about favouritism of the of the economy or people who are not in particularly fashionable industries well, the, 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 I, I think this is something you would probably agree with it, com it comes down to the whole argument about industrial strategies doesn't it yes it Whereas does essentially, it essentially becomes the fact that the government is almost managing trying to manage the economy hmm. which, which, which never goes well yeah um, and I mean that's besides the whole problems it might cause in terms of the ongoing relationship with the EU um, so the this whole jersey option suggestion is basically a way of turning that into something which might be workable, which is that you entirely separate goods and services, and we remain fully, fully harmonised and aligned in terms of goods, but in terms of services we can do whatever we want. And so it's kind of an, an attempt to turn this three baskets thing into something which might be workable. Um, other implications of this, though, would be that if we remain fully harmonised in terms of goods, that does bring in fisheries and agriculture, so they would have to still... Um, you know, go as they are today, which is a big issue for a lot of people. Uh, the second one is that we wouldn't be able to go and do our own third uh, third country trade agreements in terms of goods. We would be able to go and negotiate new agreements in terms of services. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's they've done a significant piece of research into the, into the possibility of this. Their opinion is that the EU would be willing to talk about such an arrangement, um, but it's got its own problems. Obviously, it doesn't it doesn't solve everything. So, so, sounds, like, sounds like a bit of a basket case. Uh, with which, unless either of you got anything else to add, we might just leave it there. Well, I might just throw one little, one little thing in. Intrigued. Which, we, which we were going to talk at the beginning and didn't. I'm always intrigued when you go quiet and you go tapping on, tapping on your laptop. Yeah, well, 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 most of it's just looking up crown dependencies to some of the detail a bit more. But actually, so Alex has spilled it out, spilled, uh, spelled it out very well. The one, of course, aspect where the crown dependencies, at least the Channel Islands, are separate is they are outside the EU VAT area. Ah, just a little leapers back there so again actually there's been a lot of confusion here because people, people people think that VAT is part of the single market or it's part of the customs union or it's part of it's not it's not part of any of those things VAT is there is a VAT area mm. as well all of the EU is in it 
some non-EU countries are also in it. Um, and the VAT thing has kind of raised its head over, over the Christmas period, really. Again, we, we've talked before about journalists suddenly hooking on to aspects. Um, so the big thing with VAT is what it does is it has is the UK being outside the EU VAT area, because of our heavy trade there, has big cash flow implications for companies, which we're starting to work up to. Mm-hmm. So essentially at the moment, if the UK company imports some products from within the EU... Uh, they are treated for VAT in exactly the same way as anything you purchase within the EU. Within the UK, sorry, it's treated for VAT. So you, you buy it, you do whatever you do, you charge VAT on you, on you sell it, and then when it's all done, you pass the cash, you pass the VAT bit back to HMRC. Mm. Outside the VAT area, VAT would become an import tax. Yes. So the VAT due on goods as you buy them in would need to be paid at the border. So this is now a big question in the United States whether they bring in an import tax. Exactly. So so at the moment you see a company can bring goods in but doesn't have to pay the VAT at the point of entry into the UK, it just pays it through its normal VAT accounting scheme. Mm. Outside the VAT area it would have to pay immediately. Now depending on where those are in the supply chain of course it might be several months before you actually realise the income off the product. Uh, that you bought so it doesn't have any net overall P&L impact but it does have a huge cash flow yes. impact uh, and for some businesses particularly some of those big traders um, we're looking at numbers that might have seven, eight, nine noughts a year after them so uh, is, there an, is there an easy workaround this? We, st- we stay within the EU VAT as always these things you stay within the EU VAT area excellent um, so it's, it's, it's just another of those technical things that, uh, as I said, it, it raised its head. Everyone got totally excited in the newspapers for about 48 hours, and it's now gone away again. But, but right. companies are increasingly asking about all this. Well, before I let you go, um, there is one more, one more thing. And this is just, just kind of a bit of fun. But uh, I like looking at tweets. I like looking at politicians' tweets in, in particular. And this one's from the immutable Dan, uh, Daniel Hanan. Um, unemployment falls again. More people are in work than ever before, uh, and borrowing is falling. Exports rising, the, the stock exchange at record high, manufacturing surging, etc., etc. If you're still gloomy, it's because you really want to be. Tell me, is, it, is, is he wrong or is he right? De, de, deconstruct that. He's, he's, not, he's, he's not wrong, but there's, there's aspects that sort of need playing through some of that stuff. Um, so quite a lot of what he talks about being positive is essentially currency movement effects. Mm. Um, so stock market is high primarily because of weak sterling. Um, that's still buoying things up because, what well, is it, 60% of the income of FTSE 100 countries is uh, companies somewhere is, else, is, is it? earned overseas. So as you repatriate it back through a weak sterling, that increases. The and also I think there's other things, isn't there, like... HSBC might have a couple of office blocks in Hong Kong or yeah. whatever so, it is. So, so that's, a, that's doing the work of that. Manufacturing's doing well primarily because of strong exports and the strong exports are doing well primarily because of two reasons. One is currency devaluation in the UK. Secondly, growth in the markets to which we sell has, has responded very, very well in the last six or nine months. So mm. actually, EU growth is looking pretty good at the moment, um, particularly from the core Eurozone. Um, Germany, France, Spain are all posting pretty good growth figures. So uh, actually, America's picking up. So yeah, the, the, world, the world economy generally is, is looking pretty good at the moment. That's a big surprise for lots of macroeconomists who are, who are sort of scurrying back to their models and trying to work out what's going on. So that's most of the pickup um, in all of those things is due to those two effects. UK economy, we've had some better than expected numbers uh, for UK growth. 
one, well, ONS think to 1.8. I think the bank and IMF think it'll probably come out around 1.5. I think we've said 1.6, I think, in the last one for, for 2017. They're better than we expected, but they're not great numbers. Mm. Uh, and the big thing for us is, you know, look under the hood. Yes, we might be going about 1.6% a year. Trend growth is 2.4. So we're somewhat below our normal expectations. Um, but, G- but growth in GDP per capita, how much each of us is worth of all that, is rattling along at just under 1%. Why, why, is, there a dis- why is there a discrepancy? Uh, essentially, the population is growing rapidly. Brilliant. Um, that's the main one. So, you know, we've got the rapidly ageing population. So growth of over 65s particularly uh, is high. So and you know, growth rates of the of the population generally, um, more the number of children per capita uh, being born at birth rates are up. Uh, so all of those things have a, have a downward uh, pressure on, on GDP per capita. But our GDP per capita figures in the UK have been pretty terrible for a long time. Um, and it's not a number that's really been ever sort of caught the imagination. Everyone likes GDP, but the only thing that makes each of us wealthier is uh, what happens when you divide it by the number of people. I see. So, so he's, he's right in all the, the, the things he states are correct. The other thing we don't know is... The point of the tweet is to, to annoy people, you know, annoy Remainers, really. He hasn't, he hasn't said that, but yeah. that's what he's trying to say. I think, I, yeah, I, I, I agree. That, yeah, that's most of, most of what he does. And <laughs> I, I think... Um, he's rather good at it. Going back to probably what we said in the first episode of the podcast, that Brexit hasn't happened yet. Um, but th- there might not be any reason to be particularly gloomy about where we are now. I think the people who are gloomy are probably more gloomy about the future than the current state of affairs. I, I, just, I just think it's a, a tweet to try and annoy people, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> so, to summarise... We're getting richer because our money's worth less. That's an interesting way of putting it. There you go. <laughs> Succinct. Right, so we will see you next week with more Last Week in Brexit. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jay Beardmore. Give us your Twitter accounts, please, gents. Uh, I'm at GMCC underscore Christian. And I'm at GMCC underscore Alex. Fantastic. Right, see you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.